Stereotypes don't tell the whole story. I'm your host, Annie Prathke, and you're listening to Misfits, a podcast featuring discussions with people who felt like black sheep in their communities because of their identity. This episode is a rerun for my first podcast, Not Abandoned or Alone, which I produced in partnership with Prairie Public Radio in 2021. Episode one, titled A Journey Home, is the first in a three-part series. Broadly, it's about the Chinese adoptee population in North Dakota and the experience of being Asian in the U.S. But I also talk a lot about my personal story, which I think is really important in a podcast where I'm asking other people to be vulnerable. You can listen to the full series at prairiepublic.org or on Apple Podcasts. I'm a Chinese adoptee. At six months old, my adoptive single mother flew me from an orphanage in the city of Wuhu in Anhui Province, China, to my home in Fargo, North Dakota. This was in 1996, making me one of the first Chinese adoptees in the state. Growing up in Fargo, I had a great life. I lived in a quiet neighborhood within walking distance of two parks. The trees, hung in a beautiful canopy across our street, along which lined charming and colorful craftsman houses. I had a group of close-knit friends, a big backyard, and a fluffy cat named Rosie. I love my adoptive family and feel lucky for everything I have in the state I call home. But being a Chinese adoptee is complicated, and growing up, I didn't know many people I could express these thoughts to. I was curious if my experiences were shared amongst others who carry this identity. So I interviewed Chinese adoptees from around North Dakota about what growing up here was like for them. I'm Annie Prafke, and you're listening to the first episode of my podcast, Chinese Adoptees, Not Abandoned or Alone. The full three-part series can be found at prairiepublic.org by searching my name, Annie P-R-A-F-C-K-E. My name is Eva Savageau. I am 17 years old, and I live in Bismarck, North Dakota. Eva was adopted from Yuenling in Hunan Province in 2004 when she was about a year old. Now, she's a high school student residing in Bismarck, North Dakota with her parents, Mary Jo and John. I live in a family of four, so... Um, there's my mom, my dad, and then my sister, who was also adopted from China, who is older than me. Eva's adoptive sister is Emily. She was adopted as an infant from Wuzhou in Guangxi, China, in 2002. Currently, she is studying at Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. When me and my sister were younger, we definitely clashed a lot more, but I feel like that's a bit normal for younger siblings. Now that um, we don't really live together, I feel like that's brought us closer 
in a way, just because we're not at each other's throats all the time. Sometimes she makes jokes and she's like, you're more Southern than me um, because we're from different parts of China and because I'm only I'm only one province more South than her. Do you ever make jokes or talk about adoption? Um, Sometimes we have our little little jokes, like our contact names. My name in her phone is Mini Me, and then her name in my phone is Sister from Another Mister. Kind of like what friends when you were younger like called each other, but it's my sister. In 2014, Emily and Eva had the opportunity to travel back to China with their adoptive parents on a group heritage trip hosted by Red Thread Tours, which has since closed. Eva was 11 at the time, and Emily was 13. I always wanted to go back to China, and I know my parents had been planning it for a couple years, so it was just something that we had both kind of talked about and been wanting to do. We went kind of all around China. We went to my sister's birth city, and then we went to mine as well. And when we went there, we got to see a lot of the traditional Chinese food, that we don't really see here because it's very Americanized here. And do you remember some of the dishes that you ate while you were there? I don't remember any specific dishes, but I do remember some delicacies that we had, like fish that had like the eyes. Something that I didn't realize that people ate was like jellyfish. Um, and then uh, the chicken, how it was cooked and how it was plated also like with the head still attached was kind of shocking for me. We were there for two weeks, and at the end, I was kind of just craving something that reminded me of America, where I'm, where I grew up. Uh, but I do remember um, really liking like the kind of the basics, like the spring rolls or like the chicken, and the way that they cook their vegetables. I thought was really good, and. Um, Ever since we went to China, that's like how we cook our, specifically our green beans. Um, We steam them and then we use like seasoning and we cook it in like, I think it's vegetable oil. And it just tastes a lot like what we had in China. Eva also visited the orphanage she was adopted from. She says the orphanage staff remembered her and were very welcoming. The director came up to her right away, even though Eva, having not seen her since she was a baby, didn't recognize her. She just kind of came over, started playing with my hair, and I was, like, looking at my mom, like, who is this? I don't know. And then, like, they gave me a hug. I was like, I don't know who this stranger is and why is she touching me? Eva also saw the place she was found by the man who took her to the orphanage. Yes. I did just say found. It was in an odd location. And I remember thinking, and sometimes I still think it, I was like, how was someone able to find me here? Eva's mom, Mary Jo, also remembers this moment. I remember that moment very clearly. Where do I start with this moment? Okay, we had the description that she had been found near a playground or a park. And, you know, I think as 
As adoptive parents, we always envision what these places might look like. And I had this vision of a nice park, maybe wooded with some trails where people walked through. You know, that was my vision. We ended up on this trail. If you can imagine in the middle of the city, there's like a small area there there that is undeveloped. There are very old farm homes with natural gardens. Um, it's all earth. It, there's nothing paved. We walked through that area and we ended up in an open field area that to me was obviously shaped like a high school track area. And this is where they said she was found. Mary Jo later found out that the field, where Eva had been found, had formerly been a park near a school, but between the time of her adoption and the return visit, it had been torn down. That's why the area looked so isolated when they went back. I asked Eva if at this moment she thought about her birth family and what they might be like. I never really started thinking about what they were like until last year, I think, in psychology when we were kind of learning about um, kind of like relatives being separated at birth and how they're so similar, but even though they were raised separately. So that kind of got me thinking more about not really my parents, but like if I were to have siblings, I don't really have any expectations of like what I think they would be like. But I kind of just wonder, would if we were to meet, would we be similar in personality? And then I also like think that there's almost probably close to 100% chance that I have a brother somewhere. And it is likely that she has a brother. Eva was born under China's one-child policy, which lasted from 1979 to January 1st, 2016. This policy limited families to giving birth to one child, and many parents desperately wanted a son. Dr. Tracy Barrett, Associate Professor of Asian History at North Dakota State University, says that when this policy was implemented, China was roughly 80% agrarian and very poor. Chinese officials realized they had to slow the rapidly growing population so the nation could modernize. However, it wasn't enforced uniformly. By 1979, they decide they're going to make this policy. But the, the problem is this process from 79 and 80 of, of standardizing the policy, it, it never really works. They intend to apply it across the board to all parents, whether they're in rural areas or urban areas, but that ends up not happening. Some people have a handicapped firstborn child, and so then they're allowed to have a second, or um, some uh, ethnic minority groups are allowed to have more than one child. And also, it's a lot easier to manage that policy in an urban area than it is in a rural area, right? And people who live in an urban area are more willing to kind of comply with a policy that limits children because, you know, there are limited resources, whereas people who live out on the farms need more children or feel like they do to carry on with the, with the farm work. Dr. Barrett says that low-level officials were largely responsible for implementing the policy locally. They had both the power to reward families who adhered 
and to punish those who did not comply. One of the themes that is kind of characteristic of Chinese rural areas is that you'll have a village. There'll be a woman there who is a Communist Party member who is in charge of dealing with women's issues. She is the one who distributes birth control to like local people. She talks to them about whether they should wait or if they should think about having children. And he's also the one who enables these families to get financial incentives or better jobs if they comply with the policy. But then the flip side of that, of course, is that she's the one who gets to impose economic penalties or other penalties against families who, uh, who don't follow the policies. Dr. Barrett says that punishments for people who continue to have children could be as severe as forced abortions or sterilization. While the Chinese government did not support this type of enforcement, they also rewarded officials who maintained strict adherence in their village. It's kind of like a two-edged sword. The government doesn't want forced sterilization at, at the national level, but then they reward local officials so handsomely for maintaining the policy that they encourage a system where these local officials perpetuate these um, acts of aggression, really, against, uh, against families. Historically, in China, boys were preferred over girls. So when families were restricted to one child, it was girls who were often abandoned or even killed. Gender preference is not unique to the Chinese, but Dr. Barrett says that the reasons for wanting a son in China were largely economic, as well as religious. In Confucian society, you require the birth of sons. That's kind of your fundamental responsibility. But also they... Uh, carry on the family name. And so any kind of um, ancestral reverence rituals, you know, like uh, giving offerings to the ancestors is something that is best carried on by men. There are also more practical reasons of who's actually going to earn the money. The man's family is the family that establishes the, the home where the woman comes to. The woman has always come to the men's home traditionally in China. For those of you now joining us, I'm Annie Prafke a Chinese adoptee who grew up in North Dakota. You're listening to my podcast about that experience. The full series can be found at prairiepublic.org by searching my name, Annie, P-R-A-F-C-K-E. Since learning about the one-child policy in school, Eva had given some thought to the situation it put Chinese parents in. So I'm guessing in that statement, you're referring to the fact that you were given up during the one-child policy, where many young girls were given up so that a family could have a boy. Is that something that ever bothered you growing up? It didn't really bother me. I think about it sometimes, I guess. It's kind of hard to explain. Like, in a way... I understand why they would want a son, but then I also question, was it worth it to give up your child just to have a son? Growing up, did you ever talk about the one-child policy, either in school or with your family? Um, I didn't really talk about it with my family much, 
but my freshman year in high school, at the end of the year, global studies, we had a China unit, and basically the only thing we talked about was the one-child policy. Basically, how we learned about it is we um, read two articles, and then we kind of had a Socratic seminar. So basically, the whole class just discussed it. We were to come up with questions like, do you think the one-child policy was beneficial? Um, if so, why? Or if not, why do you think it was not beneficial? Someone told me that it was beneficial because it helped population control. And I said that I disagreed with that because um, it didn't really help with population control because a lot of these children were just being put up for adoption. And overall, it wasn't helping like the world's population very much. Um, and then my teacher got mad at me for starting an argument, but I just think it the whole thing could have been handled better. It is difficult to judge how effective the one-child policy was. By most accounts, it did significantly slow China's population growth. However, it has also resulted in an aging population with far fewer young people compared to elderly people. There is also a gender imbalance with a population that is over 36 million more men than women, according to 2019 World Bank data. Dr. Barrett says this imbalance is now resulting in unexpected social problems. That's an awful lot of unattached single men who are going to have no hope or prospect of having a family of their own. And so there's a real, a legitimate social instability that comes from having such a large number of unattached men. Those are um, really the demographics in any society that are most likely to be uh, troublemakers. The one-child policy had other unexpected side effects, such as creating a market for babies to be sold for profit. Later, of course, you could just abandon the baby by the side of the road if it was a girl so that it wouldn't count as your child against your quota. Um, and then as this becomes a more systemic issue, you have people who are willing to capitalize on that by either, you know, buying children or trading children outright. So much of that money to ad adopt from China, much of that money goes to the middlemen. And the problem is that the politics behind the middlemen get really murky. You don't actually know where they're acquiring these children. The Savageau family also visited the place where Emily was found. She got to meet the man who found her and brought her to the hospital as an infant. I was lucky enough to be able to go back to the side of the road that I was found on, and they actually tracked down the man who found me on the side of the road and brought me into the hospital. And I got to meet him as well. I have pictures with him, so that's really amazing that they were able to find him. I asked Emily a similar question to the one I had asked Eva. I wanted to know if seeing the place where she was found and thinking about potentially being left by a family member was upsetting for her. Did that bring up strong emotions for you? Did it bother you at all? Uh, I think it's always bothered me. Like I never really like to say that I was abandoned. You know, you never know why a mother in China would leave her child like there are so many different possible reasons like it could be the one child policy um it could be because she's living in poverty like you never really know and so i've always liked 
to assume the best. I think it was emotional for me. I wasn't the best at expressing my emotions then, I don't think, but it was definitely a really moving experience. This is how Mary Jo remembers it. In Emily's adoption papers, I had the name of the man who had found her, and we knew he was a hospital worker. So before we traveled, the um, agency that we traveled with had asked us if there were any people we wanted to meet when we got there, who would they be? And I listed everybody I could think of. And one of the people they found was the man who found Emily, and he still worked at the hospital. When we met this man, he was incredibly emotional. He just could not believe the baby he found was now standing here and she's 13 years old. It was really, really incredible for both him and Emily and us. And he talked about it. He said he had gotten off a shift and he came out and and I think it was about 6 p.m. And here was a baby laying wrapped in a blanket on the bench. And he picked her up and took her to the police department. You know, he he tried to communicate a little bit through our interpreter, through our guide. He didn't have a lot to say. But as we were leaving, we were getting back in the van and he almost didn't want us to leave. And I felt a little bit odd about that. I looked at him like, okay, is there something more to this story that you're not telling us? The other thing I did was look back at the photos and think, is there a chance that they were related? Is there a chance that he was her birth father or a relative? And I could see, you know, you can imagine similarities and, you know, whatever you want. But I asked the agency to maybe do a little more digging and see if they could find out anything more. And they did go back to him, and they were quite confident that he was not related, that his story really was true, that he just found her there. Mary Jo was trying to find a way that this man could fill in the gaps of her daughter's origin story. And that seems like a very human thing to do. We want closure. So sometimes we look for pieces of the puzzle that may not exist. The Savageau family decided to leave an object at both Emily and Eva's finding place. Mary Jo said they mostly did it to provide their daughters with a sense of closure. But it also marked that spot, just in case whoever left them there might notice and take comfort in knowing they were alive and with a loving family. Um, with Eva, we found a fairly flat rock and I had a marker with me a black magic marker and she didn't want to write on the rock she wanted to write on a little stick that she found so she wrote her name on this stick and then she left it by the rock and I wrote something like um thank you for our daughter you know we love her very much The Savageos were profoundly impacted by this trip. 
It provided an opportunity for Emily and Eva to experience their birthplaces and reflect on their past. Yet, not all adoptees want to visit the land of their birth. One of the women I interviewed, who also happens to be my sister, Ellie, a 19-year-old who was adopted from Guangdong province in 2002, was more hesitant about returning. Is going back to your place of birth something you hope to do someday? I think I I think I should. I think it's important to see where I come from, but I don't know if I actually want to just because I think it might be sad and like I I think that your body has a memory better than your mind does. So if I like walk past the place where I was abandoned or something, I feel like I might feel something really hard and it might just kind of sink me. And also like I don't know how I would feel about reaching about birth parents because like mom is such a great mom and I don't want to like try to replace her. And I've, I've told her that and she says she wouldn't feel replaced, but I, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm ready for it yet. We'll hear more of Ellie's story in the next episode. I have never returned to the street outside of an Anway province police station where I was found 25 years ago. But I did travel to Guangdong Province, China, when my mom adopted my sister in 2002. I was six at the time, so my introspection skills were limited. However, I do recall that the experience caused me to reconsider the idyllic life I had imagined for myself had I not been given up. Not only would I have never met the people I now love most, but I would also lack the unique perspective that shapes my identity. As someone who has ties to two nations, two cultures, and two families, even if one is unknown, there is more to my story than people often assume. And with this complex identity, I work hard to acknowledge the multifaceted backgrounds that shape each of us. The connections we have the places we come from are powerful, and they often change as we learn more about ourselves. Coming to terms with your past is, after all, a journey. This podcast was script edited by Ashley Thornburg and produced by me, Annie Prafke. Special thanks to Bill Thomas for production assistance, Eric Dotheridge for music assistance, and Lily Hanaher for answering all of my editing questions. Thank you also to Dr. Tracy Barrett for sharing her knowledge and expertise, as well as to those who shared their stories with me, including the Savage Joe family and my sister Ellie. The full three-part series can be found at prairiepublic.org by searching my name, Annie Prafke. That's Annie, P-R-A-F-C-K-E. You are a cheater, you are...